Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson and I produce the Alberta Advantage, where we offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. Hello and welcome to the Alberta Advantage. I am your host, Kate Jacobson, and joining Team Advantage today are Karen, Patrick, and special guests, Brandon Doucette, dentist and member of the Coalition for Dental Care, and Thomas Lang, health economist and research coordinator at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Brandon and Thomas, thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. So Canadians are, in general, very proud of our Medicare program, and despite strenuous efforts over the decades to privatize portions of it by some governments, it does remain a very important part of Canadian society. But it also has some quite curious limitations. If you break pretty much any bone in your body, you can go to a hospital and have it taken care of through our public Medicare system. But the bones in your mouth are currently very special exceptions to this rule. Mouth bones, or teeth as we more commonly refer to them, are not included in Canada's Medicare coverage, unless of course something goes so horribly wrong with your teeth that it starts to severely impact other aspects of your health, your health and other parts of your body. My understanding is that most people in Canada access dental care primarily through work-related insurance. How do those without work-related coverage access dental care in this country? That's a great question. So as you've mentioned, dental care was not included in our universal health care system. So people do primarily rely on work-related dental insurance in order to access care. And uh, for people who don't have work-related dental insurance, they have to pay for these services either out-of-pocket or if they're lucky enough to be eligible for a targeted government program, which are very few and far between. So if we actually break down dental spending in Canada, what we find is that 95% of that spending goes to either work-related insurance or out-of-pocket payments. So the overwhelming majority is in the private sector and only a meager 5% is on government programs. This is an even lower percentage of government dental spending than even the Americans. The Canadian Community Health Survey has pointed out that uh, about 60-ish percent Canadians have some kind of insurance plan for uh, dental. Most of that is, as you said, employer-based. And that's about you know 60% uh, for those that have it. And then the rest is either they purchase their own plan like as, as a home family unit or they do not have insurance. As you're probably aware, our economy continues to basically shed full-time jobs with benefits and then replace those jobs with part-time and precarious gig work. What do these changes in the labor market mean for working people and how working people might access dental care? So this results in more Canadians not having dental insurance tied to their labor because their work doesn't provide benefits like dental insurance. So this is a trend that we've been seeing for many years now. So when we talk about, for example, over one in three Canadians lack dental insurance and one in five Canadians avoid 
to dentists each year because of financial constraints. These are numbers that are actually rising because of these changes in the in the nature of work because of young pe- younger people working in the gig gig economy more, but also because there's large numbers of older people who are retiring and losing their work related benefits as well. What happens then when people lose their dental coverage? I mean, you know, people without coverage are still going to have you know fillings that they need done, dental pain. Uh, where do they go, you know, if they to get help when they need dental care? Like what, what tends to happen, especially, I guess, uh, for people who really can't afford the out-of-pocket costs? So what happens a lot of the time when people have no dental insurance is they have to scrounge up the money. There's very limited public programs to cover people who don't have dental insurance. And oftentimes, even people who have those are covered under those programs. They struggle to find a dentist who will accept the low fees paid out by those programs or they're billed the extra amount, you know, because the program pays out a low amount, they're billed the extra amount that the dentist would normally charge, which kind of precludes these people from accessing dental care. So what happens for a lot of these people is they need to ration funds. They need to put money towards pain and infection and neglect small problems. So they don't go in for cleanings because they need to focus money on extractions. They don't get small cavities filled because they need to focus on pain and infection. But what happens when this, because this is the case, those small problems grow and become larger. So part of the pain, you know, this results in a lot of pain and suffering from the population and also lowering the quality of life for people. Yeah. And if you suddenly become unemployed, you need to prove to the government that you are eligible for these uh, programs. And so you need to prove that you have become impoverished because these programs are typically only geared to those who can receive social assistance and other welfare supports. And the problem is, is that that requires your notice of assessment from the previous tax cycle more often than not. Not just It's not enough to just simply say, I'm now on EI, so can I go on this on this benefit? There's actually quite a bit of red tape and um, navigating of the system you have to. Yeah, similar to that, teeth that appear shiny, bright, and white are often a kind of class marker that can be useful for things like networking and getting a job in the right circles. What consequences does the unequal distribution of dental care in our country have for social mobility and people's ability to pursue new opportunities? Well, I I think that's a great point that you just made, because I think many people can kind of they can sympathize with the idea of if you have visible decay or missing front teeth. it it would be very difficult to find a good paying job because of that social aspect. And that really kind of locks people in that cycle of poverty because it's so hard to break out of that cycle. And as we've mentioned, those problems only compound and get worse. So it's kind of a really devastating cycle from the purely economic standpoint. There's also many other health-related aspects as well because you could imagine how difficult it is to sleep when you have a toothache. There's also many general health conditions that actually are either caused or worsened by poor oral health. So I have a list of them here, and I think it's really kind of telling. So there's diseases like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, having a low birth weight infant, aspiration pneumonia, erectile dysfunction, osteoporosis, metabolic syndrome, and stroke. So, you know, people who can't afford dental care, they are kind of they're destined to have those consequences because they can't afford care. Because dental care is so difficult to obtain for so many people, 
there's basically an incentive to only do dental work that is absolutely necessary or to wait until things are too bad or too painful uh, to ignore, like you mentioned. This flies in the face of basically what we know about effective medicine, namely that preventative and early care results in better outcomes for people's health. This was a point that was really brought up a lot in the lead up to the implementation of Medicare. Could you outline a bit some of the consequences of this bare minimum when necessary approach to dental care? So some of the consequences to this bare minimum approach is that people have to live with chronic dental pain. They have to live with missing front teeth and visible decay for many years until it becomes too too painful to handle. So there's many kind of social and economic consequences. That's to the individual, but there's also costs towards society society as a whole. So when people have poor oral health, as we've already mentioned, they they can have poor overall health as well. So there's the costs associated to our overall health care system there. There's also kind of, it's harder to find a good paying job when you're missing front teeth. So there's potential for added costs to social programs as well. And there's also elements of what, what do you do when you can't afford dental pain? And what a lot of people end up doing is going to the doctor doctor's office or emergency departments for dental pain, which they only end up receiving an antibiotic in pain medication, which is really just a band-aid solution that leaves them still needing to see a dentist to either have the tooth removed or to have a root canal done. And this is a really big problem. So if we look at a study done in 2014 in Ontario, they found that doctor's offices were visited 220,000 times in emergency departments. 67,000 times by patients seeking treatment for dental pain. So those are huge numbers and it results in a minimum spending of $38 million per year. And this is a very kind of downstream approach that results from our private dental care system. So this money is not well spent. And in a more sensible world, I think that that money should be going directly towards dental care. And we, we should recognize that, you know, from an economic perspective, this is all waste that we as a society bear and pay in our taxes, um, sending people to emergency departments for issues that the ED can't treat, um, sending them back with more often than not, it's just you're written a, pres- a pain prescription. And if that prescription becomes covered by the public system or whatever, that's more wasteful resources that we're allocating to something that doesn't doesn't treat the root cause of the issue, if you'll pardon the pun. You know, thinking historically here, um, when when Medicare was implemented in Saskatchewan in, in 1962, prior to that happening, prior to it being adopted on a national scale, uh, we saw the medical establishment uh, go into like open revolt against the government that wanted to bring in these progressive reforms. So Saskatchewan's doctors opposed Tommy Douglas's CCF government in the preceding election. And then in 1962, they waged a very nasty campaign um, against Medicare, which included doctors going on strike. So what's your sense of the opposition among dentists to including universal dental care under Medicare? And do you think we would see dentists go on strike or do other sorts of things to oppose such a move? I think that's a great question. I do think that from my experience, there's been a lot of mixed results from dentists. Some are very supportive. 
Some, to be honest, really don't see this as their problem. They come from a socioeconomic class where they don't struggle accessing dental care. And they, you know, some people just care about their bottom line. So they will see this in the same way that physicians saw the implementation of Medicare. But I think that this is something that our group with the Coalition for Dental Care, where we are working with a lot of other healthcare providers, researchers, and the public and the dental community who are interested in this subject to try to raise the profile of an issue like this to try to overcome those barriers. Because I do think from the kind of dental, the organized dentistry, there will be opposition. As there was opposition to kind of bold public programs in the past, keeping in mind that when the implementation of Medicare was happening, there was kind of musing and in, about including dental care in our universal health care system. And, you know, there was excuses made by the dental community as to why that couldn't happen. And many of those excuses, in my opinion, were nonsense. They were not good reasons as to why dental care shouldn't, shouldn't be included in our universal health care system. But because physicians were kind of in the crosshairs as far as that battle for Medicare. Dentistry kind of, they were able to stay out of those crosshairs and we're still living with the consequences of that today. Getting to maybe one of the more contentious issues, or at least one of the questions that I think a lot of Canadians will have when we talk about including dental care in our public Medicare system is who would pay for expanding dental care And how could such a program be funded? It would obviously mean much more people receiving care. So more dental work would be done. And there certainly would be, you know, a range of health and economic benefits that would occur as a result. But I'm wondering how you would recommend an expanded dental care program be financed. And are there any proposals without co-pays or premiums? So this is something that I did research on recently and published two papers with the School of Public Policy which are available on their website, policyschool.ca. You can uh, download them for free. The two papers I I did was I I was trying to figure out exactly what you asked, like, you know, what could a a publicly financed universal dental care look like? And then how much would it actually cost? Because to date, we've we've had, you know, whispers of of this, you know, even as, as Brandon mentioned, going as far back to the birth of Medicare, but really no cost estimate and policymakers across the country need that. So um, we'll start with the first side of the equation, which is cost. And the second side is obviously paying for the cost revenue. I looked at 14 different treatment categories of dentistry, which span all the way from providing, you know, like scaling, preventative and uh, recall exams, things like that, x-rays, all the way up to, you know, root canals, dentures, and even uh, some of the orthodontic work. And uh, the cost that that comes back through our econometric model, which I'll save listeners the painstaking, boring details, it comes back to over 20 billion dollars nationally, but that's just the gross clinical costs. As you said, that would be a situation in which we'd had no co-payment, no premiums, nothing of that. But then we also have to factor in there's administrative costs, which also get added in that adds that up a bit. And then there's also the fact that these program, this universal program would actually be replacing existing programs And if it's universal, meaning everybody's covered, it replaces everybody that's on a private insurance plan, which includes public sector employees. And public sector employees, full-time ones across all orders of government in Canada, more often get um, dental benefits, but they're brokered through a private brokerage. 
And that's money that we pay for through our taxes. Our estimates total that up to about $6 billion in 2019. That's just for public sector workers. So you'd be replacing that. You'd be replacing the one bill, about $1 billion that we spent in 2019 on those public plans. So just think about that for a sec. You know, $1 billion is spent on, as we said, people who are lower socioeconomic status, who need have the higher burden of oral health disease. We only spent about $1 billion. But to cover the whole system, we need to ramp this up to, you know, close to $20 billion clinically and or in terms of clinical costs. So you're right. There would be a expected big increase in the total number of Canadians using dentistry and perhaps the frequency in a given year by which they utilize dentistry. But as we've said before, this has uh, you know benefits that are preventative on the rest of the health system as well. The rest of my work comes into looking at um, alternatives. And the alternative that I looked at was what if you just covered this uh, for people who just don't have private insurance? So filling that gap. Because as I said at the beginning of this, I don't know if I put numbers to it. It's about 33% of Canadians don't have insurance for dental care, any insurance, public or private. That's a pretty significant gap. How much would it cost to fill that? And obviously, it's it's closer to about 14 billion. So obviously, the gross clinical cost is less because you're covering less people. Now, where it gets a little interesting is when we talk about this idea of co-payment and premiums. I want to emphasize from an economist perspective, I know that in the healthcare system, we don't do co-payment. Um, we, less and less provinces are doing premiums. But I want to emphasize that it is kind of important to have these measures built in because you don't want to necessarily have completely frivolous use of, of public covered dental services. You want people to make sure that they are still brushing their teeth, still taking their oral health care seriously. And from a behavioral economics perspective, we know that adding in even just marginal co-payments does change behavior. And studies do show it does change behavior towards good oral health practices, good overall health practices, be preventative. There's a theory, and I'm not, this is a theory, it's unpublished. I heard this from an econ prof once who suggested that those you know, fail videos on YouTube where people are like breaking their necks off bikes and everything that those tend to occur more often in countries that have robust public health care systems. Um, because the financial burden is on the public system. It's not on them. But if you add co-payment, people start to make different choices. Uh, that's just a, that's just a theory. That's I, I don't really subscribe to it that uh, religiously. But co-payment and premiums, I do feel, are very important. But I think that they're important as long as they're tiered to your ability to pay them. So in my paper, we tiered them based on your income and exempted a lot of lower income individuals, like below a household income of 40000 to 20000 that kind of thing, and, and below. So really, you would be having higher income people paying in the line share of direct out-of-pocket into these programs. And in that sense, it transfers financial risk from low-risk individuals to higher-risk individuals. In that sense, higher-income people subsidize lower people more directly. And that's very important to have. And so what we did is we created a structure of co-payments and premiums, and we applied them to both programs. And here's what we found. When they're applied to both programs, the universal dental care program at the net costs less than the net cost of just providing dental insurance to those without insurance. And the main driver behind this is because under that latter program, public employees are no longer eligible to be on it because um, they have dental insurance through a private provider. And most of the people in that insurance pool you're covering are poor individuals who are exempt from copayment or pay less of a proportion. So putting everyone in the same basket is, you know, of, of payment, that is probably the most efficient way that we could go forward with this, um, just holding those two things equal. Now, in terms of actually rolling it out, the option of just providing insurance to those who don't have it is probably the easiest way to go forward because um, you're not necessarily stepping on toes of private industry, but you still need to make sure that you're, as I said before, compensating dentists fairly so they don't just, again, choose not to take people in the public programs. To answer the, the other part of your question, or the other part of the equation, how do we pay for it? 
is a you know because there's still a net cost six billion um, is the net cost of national universal dental care how do we pay for that really quickly I, I'd like to see it I'd like to see us raise uh, tax revenue potentially that could help deter unhealthy behavior such as the sin taxes on sugary sweetened beverages I can go into more detail on that later but um, we know that high consumption of sugary beverages causes oral health disease or is linked to it so taxing that away may be a, a way to contain costs in universal dental care as well as pay for them using the tax revenue. I, I think uh, to add something to what you're saying there, Tom, uh, that I think is really important to stress when we're talking about paying for universal dental care uh, is that we can actually shift the burden of costs onto the wealthy because you can structure taxes in such a way that the, say the average person now is paying six, $700 per person per year for dental care through their private insurance and out-of-pocket payments. When we use struggle the tax system in such a way, you can st- structure it so that average, you know, working class people might only be paying $300, $400, whereas somebody who makes a couple million dollars a year is going to be paying a lot more. I really appreciate you bringing that up, Brandon, because from my perspective on co-pays and premiums, which ultimately I do disagree with Tom's perspective here, is that taxation is a much better way to make sure that the wealthy are subsidizing a public service like universal dental care for the rest of us rather than a tiered copay system. And and the reason I do say that is because ultimately, at the end of the day, I would rather have a small minority of people take advantage of universal dental care through uh, frivolous uses than have people not be able to access dental care because of the financial burden that it places on them, or even the administrative difficulties that something like a copay or a premium system places onto people. Not to mention that I think a copay or a premium system also adds kind of an administrative burden uh, to any kind of universal system and that removing that uh, burden of clerical work and of administration not only makes the program easier to administer, but it also makes it easier to defend politically, uh, both when you are implementing it and like with Universal Medicare, when you are defending it from the decades of attacks that have happened to it um, across the country. Sorry, just to rebut really quickly. I mean, I, of course. I, I mean, honestly, I like I, I like this discussion. I love the points you raise. And again, you know, we're not. You know, please disagree with anything I say or anything. Like, because honestly, the only way that we get good public policy is if we have debate. Frankly, just to your point about, you know, I, I'm I'm fine with a, a small share of the population having frivolous use. When you think about it, the small share that I'm referring to is the lowest on the uh, you know the income structure. They're exempt from it. So the behavioral effects of co-payments, premiums, that doesn't touch those individuals. So an argument I've, I've had with a few other health economists is that, well, no, the, the poor will be just going off and getting a bunch of indenture work and, and, and orthodontic work. And my exact response to that was similar to yours, which was, yes, good, because they're the ones that have the highest burden of it. It's not actually frivolous because when you're lower income um, and lower socioeconomic status, you just have a higher risk for dental issues. We have, like we said, that sort of cycle of poverty of, you know, if you don't have good teeth, you're not going to get a job. So I would like to see those individuals being able to take advantage of orthodontic work and things like that. It's when you get further up the chain, if you have the household ability to pay directly, then I think you're going to get a lot of arguments from both economists, but also just even more people maybe on the libertarian side of the spectrum that would say you should be able to do it, you're, you know, 
If you have the means to pay, do it. I, I strictly argue it from an economics perspective of just you're trying to transfer financial risk between pools. And you're right, the tax system does do this, but salience matters. And what I mean by that is it's kind of like when you look at your bill at a restaurant and you see the tax listed out at the bottom um, or you see it on the menu, it changes how you think as a consumer. And I know that sounds a little weird because I'm calling you consumers, not patients. But from an <laughs> econ perspective, that's what they are. It does cause you to think about this. And the way we tier it in the paper is we really emphasize, you know, low, low levels of copayment on preventative measures and, um, you know, routine checkups. So that, that way people are going to the dentist uh, more often. And that way too, it undercuts the private plans because they don't tier based on your income, which is not fair. <laughs> so that's, that's just my, my rebut there. I think something to add to that, Tom, as well, is that I, I think in theory that adding the tiered copayment system can have benefits. One concern I have politically, though, is that once you open the door for those out-of-pocket payments, it's much easier for, say, a conservative government down the road in time of austerity to make that copayment or that out-of-pocket payment apply to broader swaths of the population in order to save government spending. And I take that point too. To be honest, there's a side of me that would say that's that might be necessary if that's the choice. We have to think about overall healthcare spending as it is right now. Um, you know, in Alberta alone, income tax, just personal income tax, does not cover the cost of the healthcare system. So, and I know we have other tax revenue sources. As I'm saying earlier, we need to think about other new ones if we want to talk about expanding the healthcare system. But um, yeah, and and also to a point that was brought up before about you know it's an administrative burden. I think that's a very fair point um, because currently in Canada we don't have an auto file tax system. You know, so how do we link the? Uh, and now I sound like I'm arguing with myself but I'm, I'm full disclosure on it. Like we don't have an auto file tax system. So how do we link your income from your last you know, notice of assessment to your healthcare numbers? The data exists. It's possible. We know from other European countries that have very advanced e-government structures um, that it can be done. And the Trudeau liberals have suggested in the last speech on the throne that they want to move to that. So when we talk about access to oral healthcare, that's a big piece of the puzzle we're missing. As I mentioned before, can't get on the existing programs unless you can prove your work. Unless we fix that hurdle, then exactly as I've proposed in this paper about tiered co-payments and tiered premiums, it can't actually be administered effectively. And I'm happy to argue for an autofile tax system as well. It's something I believe should exist because of the administrative burden that it places on poor and working class people. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I do think co-pays and premiums are antithetical to a vision of universal dental care. And I think one of the reasons that universal programs like our universal Medicare system are so strong is because they create a much larger constituency than a program that is tiered in any way. One of the main political issues I foresee with a program that includes co-pays and premiums is that it could be structured in such a way that people will begin to think of public dental care as something that is for poor people or that is for certain segments of the population rather than something that is universally held and universally defended. So I think when you have a program that's universal, you create a larger political constituency that can be mobilized to defend it in the future. And I think that's very important for not only defending the program itself, but also for how uh, building up a stronger welfare state 
fundamentally restructures our society in a way that I believe is positive. Absolutely, I, I think that's more of an ar- uh, more of an argument. I would I would agree with when you're thinking of the choice between those two models I put forward, the two ideas of you know universal dental care or dental care just for the people who don't have insurance because that's a lower pool, and as you said, there's less agency in the public, there's less um, buy-in from people, and you're right. Then that's just for the poor, and that's why I tend in those papers I tend to argue for the universal single basket everyone in the same pool because we do have the agency. I don't necessarily, I'm not aware of any studies or political science, you know, studies to suggest that, you know, being in one pool and having one person pay a premium while another person not um, necessarily takes away that agency from higher income people being involved in, you know, and and keeping their buy-in to the system that they have. Because that certainly was not the case that we saw with MSP premiums in British Columbia, or even when we had health premiums here in Alberta. Public policy is hard because it always involves choices. And I think you raised some very interesting trade-offs that premiums and co-payments have that are more, maybe more political in nature um, than say economic. So, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, Tom, I feel like that's something I very much appreciated reading your papers was that I feel like very few academics make those bold stances and say we should switch towards a universal system. From my experience, many have been much more comfortable saying maybe we should tinker around the edge here or there, but making the jump towards having a universal system, I think is a huge step in the right direction because when we have a system where someone can get paid $100 for doing a filling for one person and $50 for doing a filling for another person, we create a fast lane for the people who have that higher amount and a slow lane for the people who don't. And at its core, that universal universal dental care system is a huge step in the right direction to fix that and create a more equitable dental care system. 100%. And that we have a whole Supreme Court decision in BC that explained why we didn't want that in Medicare, that you could have a a line for fast line for people who can pay for their, you know, day surgeries versus everybody else that can't. Brandon and Thomas, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and giving us a comprehensive overview of some of your work and advocacy around dental care in Canada. If people are interested in finding out more about you or the work you do, where should they go? They can find us at Coalition for Dental Care on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Please message us if you're interested and want to get involved or just, you know, follow us to see more events and information on the subject. Yeah, and you can head over to the School Public Policy website, policyschool.ca. You can uh, find those publications that I worked on there. As well, you can follow me on Twitter Twitter at Tom Lang YYC. Amazing. Yeah. Once again, thanks so much for joining us. I think this episode turned out great. Thank thanks you. for having us. Thank you so much for the debate too. I really liked it. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long, Calgary. No, we love you. Makes no difference.